Welcome to this episode of The Money Movement here in early 2022. I'm really pleased to be joined today by Sid Powell, who's a co-founder of Maple Finance. We're going to get into a lot of detail about what Maple Finance is. I've been tracking the work that Sid and team have been doing for uh, quite a while now, for the last, you know, I don't know if it's been a year. I think uh, you guys launched last spring, maybe? Yeah, yeah, it was around May. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I've been watching this. And I think, you know, Maple is, is a fascinating project that is, I think, representing a kind of taking institutional markets models in debt, in lending, and kind of re-envisioning it and rebuilding it entirely on chain. And, you know, here at Circle, we see a lot of really interesting use cases with USDC and in DeFi. And I think there's this kind of fusion of TradFi, DeFi, stablecoins. And I think in some ways, maybe we're seeing the birth of the future of, of global debt markets kind of happening you know, here. So lots to talk about on all those themes, but maybe just to get started, Sid, tell us a little bit about your own journey, your background, and kind of how you got into crypto, as people always like like ask and share, and then <laughs> we'll drill in from there. Yeah, sure. And very happy to be here. Thanks, Jeremy. I came from a debt capital markets background, and this was working in institutional banking back in Australia, where I was involved in securitization. And so what that means was largely we were helping lending companies to access uh, funding from banks and from investors so that they could grow their business and lend more money to customers. So I was doing that for a while, but I was always more interested in kind of working with the entrepreneurial builders who were our clients. And then I eventually had the opportunity to, to go across and actually join a commercial lending fintech and to help them raise capital so that they could grow their own business. And it was being on the client side and actually having to go through the process of working with banks, working with investors to try and borrow and access debt capital markets as a customer to support our growth that, you know, I, I became very conscious of the process hasn't really changed in about 30 years. Uh, you deal with a lot of lawyers, you deal with a lot of different third parties, and it's actually very slow for innovative companies to actually access the funding they need to grow. And so this was around about early to mid 2018, we started learning about smart contracts. And I, that was actually where I met my co-founder and we started learning about this idea that, well, maybe you could actually have programmatic bonds or you could have programmatic loans. And that really hit a nerve for us. And we started to think, well, we've got hundreds of pages of legal documents that all just say, if this, then that. And couldn't that be done way more efficiently with code? And then couldn't you set up you know, some kind of infrastructure that would actually link the companies around the world to a marketplace uh, for these products? And so anyway, we, we kind of ground away for, for about 18 months writing white papers, trying to come up with a proof of concept. And then it was really late last year that we were actually able to, to raise funding and to start to build out the team. And what that coincided with was broader acceptance of DeFi. I remember when we first started, people were saying, no, 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 DeFi yields will not be a thing. Therefore, you can't really build some kind of, uh, some kind of credit marketplace. That's what we set about to build, which is a marketplace for growth capital built on top of Web3 technology that innovative companies from around the world can access really to fund this kind of next disruptive era in history. It's awesome. And, and I think the idea of programmable money, you know, it's been something that a lot of people have talked about for a long time. We're obviously seeing it play out in a big way with smart contracts now. And uh, 
there's a glimmer in people's eyes. I remember, you know, when we founded Circle in, in 2013, like, yeah, this was like the thing that got me really excited. And actually, you know, in the early days in our, in our original Series A presentation, it was like, you're going to be able to have programmable smart contracts. And we envisioned like stable coins, like, you know, what we, what we thought they weren't possible then, but, but we were thinking yeah. about it. And specifically the idea that entrepreneurs or people who create value, who want to securitize their value creation in some form and efficiently put that into an internet capital market with the frictionlessness of, of the equivalent of like setting up a shop on, on Alibaba or on, on Amazon, like that was inspiring. It was like, okay, that's going to become possible. And, you know, I, I think, you know, I remember we'd have board meetings and, you know, we'd talk about the phases of sort of how this would go. And yeah. And I, and I always thought like that kind of stuff would be like in the 10 to 20 year timeframe. That was yeah. 2013. Yeah. But you know, we're now, you know, eight and a half years and it's here. I mean, the, these, these building blocks are here. And so it's a really, really exciting moment. And I, I know, um, you know, a lot of this stuff still feels really nascent and like the user experience for, for all these things, but is really getting started. So with Maple specifically, maybe walk through the kind of architecture of how different types of entities might interact with it. And then maybe um, just at a high level, just the, the sort of tech stack today and, and how you think about that as well. Yeah, so at, at, at a very high level, how Maple works is it's obviously uh, it's a lending marketplace. So on either side of that, you have the borrowers. And our borrowers today are primarily crypto native companies, and they're choosing to use us because they might be very profitable, but they struggle to access capital from banks. And that's because the space still largely has a bit of a reputational uh, risk around it for, uh, for traditional lenders, where they kind of view it as akin to alcohol, firearms, and tobacco, for lack of a, lack of a better analogy. So that's one side of the place and bond from on-chain pools. And the way I think about pools is that they, they really provide the infrastructure for this kind of on-chain lending business. So you can think of a pool similar to like a debt fund or an OTC lending desk. And what's different about Maple is that each pool is a manager and this is a sophisticated underwriter. Often it's a fund manager or an asset manager or a team with, you know, with fixed income or banking experience. And what they're doing is they're talking to the borrowers, assessing the nature of their business, and then vetting that they can repay the loans. And then they approve the, these loans to go out on chain from that pool. And then the funding for the pool has come from the lenders. So you've right. got three parties on our systems. You've got the borrower, the, uh, the delegate who's managing a pool, and then you've got the lenders. And the lenders are largely institutions who want to get a yield on their stable coins. So yeah. that's, that's a perfect use case for, uh, for USDC. And other component is, of course, uh, how we manage risk on the platform. And that's done through staking, you know, staking a reserve to the pool. And there's lot, lots to break down there. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating. So, I mean, I think a lot of people who are familiar with DeFi you know, think about it as here's a way that like, you know, traders do margin borrowing to do more trade, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And there are obviously exceptions to that. that a lot of this like over collateralized crypto collateral borrowing to do things. <clears throat> That's one very large, you know, use case. There are certainly people who are kind of margin borrowing to buy a car or a house or whatever. Yeah. 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 Retail level stuff. But I think 
the idea of a debt market where there's a marketplace and where you're organizing, you know, a, a, a market structure, which has actually got some similarities to existing debt market structures. So you're creating a debt market structure. And this idea of, you know, when, when people think of pools, liquidity pools, yes, people know that anyone can come in and be an, an LP and a DeFi protocol. But here in Maple, it's, it's really different. Like a pool manager, I guess you call it pool delegate or what have you, is really a professional debt investor and underwriter, right? So you're creating confidence on top of this. You happen to be organizing all of it yeah. on chain, right? So it's everything is you know transparent and on chain, the actual funds, if there's going to be collateral, everything's on chain, right? So unlike with the legacy financial system, which is just like a bunch of paper docs fly over a wall and then the wire goes, yeah. okay, what's going on? Like th this is just you know more audible, more transparent, more secure uh, in, in many respects. But that kind of creating that that intermediary of a professional manager in a sense is like a, a, a really significant difference between the way you're building you know the, these lending markets uh, compared to general open kind of DeFi lending. But on these, I see like Alameda and Block Tower and Maven uh, Eleven, like some great players in the space who know a lot and are, you know, sort of able to utilize that capital really, really efficiently. And so if you're in the market and you know these players, you're like, okay, yeah, I, I'm willing to, you know, lend to Alameda because they're brilliant and they have this incredible track record. Everyone knows them and everyone knows they've got a strong balance sheet. But like, how does that scale to a thousand pools? And and are there you know, are you envisioning other mechanisms of information that become available to the marketplace, just like risk and reputation in eBay in the classic example, or or uh, on Amazon third-party sellers or whatever the right analogy is? How do you think about scaling that so that the average person or institution is sort of facing, is that is that just time and reputation or how do you think about that? Yeah, I think, I think scale comes from two areas. So it's going to be, first of all, the way that our protocol scales is that we would need to add more pool delegates and pool delegates can then functionally add more, more pools. And you can think of each pool being able to pursue its own strategy, whether it be targeting a particular industry. So I'd say right now we have a fairly high representation of, you know, crypto financial institutions, market makers, trading funds, arbitrages. But you could, you could also see you know, an industry that might, a pool that might be targeting the tech industry or SaaS companies, or you could see a regional focus there where it might be Southeast Asia or a European exposure or, or North American. And so that helps us scale the number of pools and it helps us capture more kind of lender preferences where they might not want just a mono exposure or a, or a largely diversified exposure to every company in the space, but they want to select a specific industry. And to that end, I think it's the information about the pool delegates underwriting. So it's like you might evaluate, you know, Vanguard or any, any other kind of like fund manager in that respect, but you would want to see how well they've performed in terms of underwriting defaults, yep. you know, NIM generated, that kind of thing. And so I think that's one element. And that all, all that data is effectively on chain, right? It is. It, it is. Because all the funds flows are done on chain with stable coins, yeah. mostly or whatever. And so you have all of that, right? You're not, yes. you're not relying on uh, third party assurance, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. And then 
On the flip side of that, then you have more kind of borrower-specific information. And borrowers really like the product because all of their loans and loan performance history are on chain. So they can transparently show, hey, we've, you know, we've repaid, repaid five loans with perfect, uh, you know, perfect payment history. And so over time, that helps them build a better, you know, credit worthiness profile, credit score, so to speak. And then they can borrow on better terms. And these are things that otherwise would have been totally private within the private placement market. It never would have been legible. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's, um, I, I like to uh, use this analogy often of, you know, I think in a conversation we were having the other day, I talked about like long tail markets, you know, the internet's really great at, at, at creating long tail markets, long tail markets for content like YouTube or long tail markets for advertising like Google, long tail markets for commerce like Amazon, blah, blah, blah. Right. So theoretically, right, you can create these long tail markets on these kinds of infrastructures, which is super, super exciting because it, it really is about democratization and, uh, to access to capital on, on both sides, right? On both sides, the, the investor lender slash, and then on the other side, the borrower. But, you know, that all of these platforms have, have been able to use, you know, data and use, use data and effectively various forms of scoring or predictive analytics or other things. And do you envision that? Like you're going to have enough data that this, you know, this effectively will provide that level of sort of signaling that it can be mass, like a, a mass scale infrastructure. Yeah, I think so. And as we scale, so we're still very early on in terms of gathering those data points. But as you gather enough points on both good credits and bad credits, then naturally data scientists are going to be able to enter the ecosystem, look at this and try and formulate credit scoring models. And you could see, you know, you could see the birth of effectively like on-chain ratings agencies. Absolutely. You know, that would have this kind of technical expertise to scrape all this information and process it. And that naturally makes it much more scalable then because all the data is on chain. So you, you don't have that bottleneck and that friction in producing that scoring. Yeah. Yeah. What is the, um, maybe just for, for the uh, viewers and listeners out there, just these markets today, the markets that are operating on Maple today, what are the typical uh, borrowing rates? APYs, what's this kind of typical cycle of capital kind of thing? Yeah, so the product that we have uh, on, you know, on, on, on the marketplace at the moment in these pools is fixed, fixed rate, fixed term loans. Uh, so it really resembles the kind of the term credit market. And that was a deliberate decision because we wanted to be able to provide you know, certainty around capital budgeting for these companies. So the loans would typically be kind of average size might be five to 15 million at the moment. It's been getting larger as, we, as we've been going. Uh, and then typical tenor might be about six months. So six months, interest only. Borrowers are typically uh, paying an APY of between sort of like eight and a half to 12 and a half percent at the moment. That's just, and that obviously fluctuates with the market. And then these are, we began with some level of collateralization, but given we were targeting the most creditworthy borrowers in the market, these have shifted to be more uh, uncollateralized, and that reflects the nature of the business because you're lending to a market maker who's always got the capital on hand because it's just in in exchange. Right. It's interesting. So, uh, I wanted to talk about the collateral piece of this uh, as well. Um, so, it's under collateralized for the most part, but there is some that's un uncollateralized. And is the collateral, you know, what are the forms of collateral that are in the protocol today? Yeah, so the, the forms of collateral that we accept today are cryptocurrencies. So it's WBTC, which is an ERC-20 form of, of Bitcoin, of course. And then we've also taken uh, stable coins and we've onboarded 
know, the ability to do things like Aave or Link, for example, as collateral. So, but it very much remains within like crypto cryptocurrency as collateral. And that partly reflects the thinking that like, yes, real world assets are a larger total addressable market, yeah. but that the need for them wasn't really burning. You know, like the people who could borrow on good terms already were. So you would have had to go out on the credit risk curve to, to support re real world assets at present. So I think we'll get there eventually. Yeah, yeah. And is the collateralization, is that a decision that the pool delegate is making? So there's, yeah, so that that, that kind of quote unquote underwriter is, is, is sort of making that determination. Yeah, so, so they, they bilaterally negotiate things like, uh, you know, things like price and collateral level with the, uh, the borrowing client as they due diligence them. And that was something, you know, that was a deliberate design decision. We wanted the pool deli, you know, we really see ourselves as infrastructure for people to run lending businesses, fixed income asset management and OTC lending desks. And we trust that those pool delegates have the expertise. We, of course, due diligence them and their processes before they get whitelisted. But we wanted to have that diversity in the ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's sort of um, a lot of markets that you can go after. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Clearly getting kind of getting anchored in, you know, kind of let's just call it crypto capital markets participants is, is there's a real need, the volumes are higher, et cetera. How self-service is the, is the protocol today versus kind of need, needing to kind of be whitelisted into being in different roles on it and things like that? And at what point do you envision it being more self-service so that, you know, someone who's like, I really understand, you know, mobile app entrepreneurs in Nigeria, and I'm going to be the, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to write that risk, so to speak, or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll assume before we have like Tala as a delegate on the protocol, yeah. I think so right now, early on. It's in, a, in more of a curated stage, and that's because we wanted to ensure a good experience for lenders uh, and also for the borrowers who come on board. So you have, yeah, you, you have this kind of whitelisting process where you know we would go through, understand like the way that a delegate is going to underwrite and assess borrowers and, and which target markets they go after, so it doesn't cannibalize existing pools. But as we scale up, we want that to be more self-service, where a pool delegate could say propose themselves, and then it could be approved by governance. And that's really like part of this pathway to, to like progressive decentralization of the protocol. It's a good tie-in to, to the broader kind of Maple architecture. And I think, um, you know, the existing concepts of like, there's a bank that facilitates all this, or there's um, an ATS that's like a specific market for a certain bucket of of debt instrument trading or OTC markets like that. And there's lots of analogs. Yeah. That are out there, but Maple is a DAO, and the Maple token and the protocol are governed. And that it sounds like, as you're describing it, that that governance is going to play a significant role in kind of determining how, what kinds of market participants get involved, how this grows, etc. Maybe you could just walk through the mechanisms that are there today. What is that today? And then, you know, maybe walk me out 18 months from now and what you're envisioning, the, what kind of coordination is happening and what kind of decisions are being made and how's that, you know, growing the market? Yeah, it's an interesting question because decentralized, like the level of decentralization of various DeFi protocols in the communities comes up all the time. 
And I think you've seen at the far end of one spectrum, you might have total on-chain governance at the moment. And that's where, that's really suitable where you might have a limited number of parameters that need to change. Like, and otherwise the protocol is totally permissionless. But in the case of Maple, it's like there is a bit more complexity because you're making decisions on, you know, say bringing in a trusted party, like the, the manager or the delegate running the pool. And so the level of decentralization that we've got in place at the moment is that there is a multi-sig controlling that DAO wallet and or the DAO wallet or address has the treasury funding and then it also has you know the ability to change settings be it fees lockups or pause the protocol for security reasons so that's decentralized away from core team and involves you know members of our cap table and then i think over time we will add you know community members uh, to that multi-sig but then the way that it makes decisions to reflect the will of the community is that we poll the community in voting proposals. And so we have maple improvement proposals. So it would receive a write-up in the community forum. It would need to get endorsement. And then there's a seven-day voting period that's opened where people who hold a specified percentage of the token can vote. So it's kind of, uh, it's a bit of a crude implementation at the moment. But as it increases in sophistication, you would see things like a uh, full implementation of snapshot where it's uh, token weighted voting rather than just a person gets a vote when they satisfy a minimum level. And then as we progress, you'd start to see that proposals are actually like queued in as like upgrades to the code or like actual changes to the settings. And those are just voted in where the voting actually triggers the implementation. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's kind of the path to where you get to, I think, over 18 months. But I think it's actually really important that communities have, I don't think you can you can have a vote on everything. It's inefficient. It detracts from the idea of yeah. product vision and design decisions. So I think the way I would see it working is that, you know, effectively the community might elect multi-seek holders who would kind of represent, you know, good governance. And then they would choose, uh, you know, operational managers who then make the executive decisions day to day and staff out the team that you need to make the decisions that you just, you know, you don't want to be voting on all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I can imagine down the road, right. You have like the, the example of, of yeah. you know, le leveraging DAO token holders to, for making decisions, like kind of market expansion decisions, which is really about who are you, who are you allowing in as, as pool delegates and, and that you could have a, uh, you know, a, a tiered structure where you're kind of delegating down to, you know, there's a group that's like very, very focused on, you know, I'll use that example, fintech in Africa or whatever. And, and then you're basically delegating down to that group to basically, you know, be in the market finding the pool delegates for a whole set of investing activities or, or borrowing. Yes. That's right. And that. So you kind of have, have the market expansion, you know, the community could actually drive the market expansion of this uh, in some pretty significant ways as well. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I think it's kind of interesting at the moment because like if you look at a DAO, a DAO doesn't have like a kind of legal entity uh, yeah. behind it at present. Like I know some jurisdictions are, are working to set that up, which could be an innovation that makes it easier for DAOs to do business with different vendors or service providers like lawyers, accountants, what have you. But it is also this interesting time where when you talk to people who are service providers, and you explain that you're a DAO, it's kind of like there aren't the mental models on the other side to actually yeah. sort of conceive, conceive of what's happening. So that 
that often puts a bit of a stopper on a puts a bit of a stopper on business. But it's kind of the same way, you know, 500, 500 or 700 years ago, someone might have asked you like what religion you belong to or dominant kind of, you know, theism rather than the, there wasn't the concept of a nation state, whereas now everything needs to be tied to a nation state jurisdiction. And maybe in future that shifts a bit. Yeah. I mean, the, the invention of uh, the joint stock corporation was about five yes. years ago as well. Took a while for it to kind of take hold. But I, yeah. I, I talk a lot about, uh, about, you know, and other people too, but basically like we're finally getting, we're reinventing uh, corporate forms and, and mm-hmm. we're, we're going to graduate past the joint stock corporation, I think pretty readily. I think, you know, it's just re- reflective of how, you know, capital and, and work can be organized in the age of the internet and, and what, what that looks like. So uh, to me, this is just, um, I think the, just the birth of, of, of a new, a new era and how labor and capital uh, is organized, but it, it's interesting. It's sort of, I'm very excited about uh, where you can go with this, obviously, <laughs> but um, you know, maybe, maybe um, coming back in a little bit to that for you, does this eventually compete with or provide the infrastructure to enable firms to compete with commercial banks at scale? Yes. Uh, so th- the way I see us is, is that Maple's not a lending company competing with commercial banks or the likes of JP Morgan. Instead, we're more like infra- like a layer of infrastructure. Kind of imagine it being like Shopify. Shopify created this new platform. Anyone who wanted to compete in e-commerce could set up a virtual shop front. They compete on price, range, selection, what have you. We're doing the same thing for capital markets. So you could have a team, you could have a commercial bank, you know, set up and run a pool on here. You could have a team break away from a commercial bank and set up and run a team, but then they're competing on ability to manage risk, ability yeah. to source capital. It's like credit funds, credit funds compete with commercial banks. Exactly. On a huge scale now, right? I mean, that, that yeah. developed over the past, whatever it is, 20, 30 years, right? Yeah. But one, one of the difficulties for, for them is that they still have huge fixed costs. And what Maple does is, is kind of like, I guess to borrow another analogy, it sort of compresses that in the same way that Amazon did for spinning up servers and infrastructure. Totally. And it converts this to a variable cost proposition. Now that makes it much easier now to be a team of five or 10 running a lending business or a credit fund and competing with really large banks because you're on a level playing field of infrastructure. And that actually, I think it makes the market healthier because it gets away from the idea of returns to scale. And it brings us back to a, a more level playing field and kind of, I guess, at best can kind of unbundle some of those structuring teams, like really promising ones can go and run their own business on top of Maple. Yeah, totally. One of the things that uh, using that long tail markets concept a little bit more that the internet's really, really good at bringing experts together. You know, Reddit communities are sort of like one to say, Example, but but there's obviously huge numbers of kind of expert-led communities. Obviously, just the 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 ability for people with knowledge to kind of synthesize that, organize that, interact around that empowers decision making and understanding far far more sort of decentralized and and far more open kind of models. And when I think about long tail capital markets, it, it seems like kind of taking a little bit of, of, of that and finding ways to structure that in tooling that supports these, call them pool delegate formation or whatever on, on Maple terminology, 
it's potentially really, really powerful, right? It, it may be that the, the people who can actually like figure out at a very micro level, like what's a good opportunity from a lending perspective may not be people who have any background in finance at all. It may actually, it may actually just be, be people who are really close to a geography, a domain, uh, a community, and, you know, can kind of convene that knowledge. And it's, I think, to the degree that, you know, DAO, you know, members, as it were, can extend to normal people, not, you know, FINRA licensed, uh, you know, the other, right, but, but sort of an internet of kind of participation. It's really interesting. Obviously, we're, we're not there right now, but um, you can imagine that. We'll get there over time. And I, I, I like that idea of the long tail because, I mean, one thing Tim Ferriss has talked about before is, is like the idea of finding 100 true, true fans to kind of run like an internet business. Now, as a lending company, like let's say you're, you're part of JP Morgan or Fortress Group or something. Now, maybe you can't find 100 SaaS companies within a specific niche in, you know, like North America. And so that then means you can't find a market, but across the, the breadth of the internet, you might be able to find a hundred of these SaaS companies. That's enough to set up and run a pool around if you have the expertise there. And that's how we can serve the kind of the long tail of these companies that are kind of, you know, building out the future there. And you can run a durable business just serving that. Yeah, I mean, you, theoretically, right? I mean, someone who's organizing $5,000 loans and doing that, a whole bunch of those, I mean, the, the unit economics will work, right? And it's, it's it doesn't have to be, you know, th that's the scalability model. And I use with, with long tail markets in, in other areas, like I can be like, like I make, I don't know, 50 grandfather clocks a year and I sell them on Amazon. You know, I sell them on Amazon because people, and you know, you go to my website, you learn about them, you click through to Amazon and Amazon gives me my logistics, but I only sell 50 of these things and it's my passion and it's what I do. And you know what? I can go to Google and I can actually, you know, buy ads that, you know, target, you know, income holders in these cities with this of people who are likely to want to buy uh, original grandfather clocks or whatever. And I can find that person and I can efficiently reach them because I have self-service tools and the ability to kind of match that. And so it's that, that sort of level of what's happened in commerce. It's just like bringing that to capital, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, yeah, the, the, the core things that infrastructure like this help with are, are kind of that discovery function. Uh, I mean, as you said, like if you're making those grandfather clocks, but you can use targeted ads to acquire customers, you know, ma massively lower customer acquisition costs. And it's the same for someone running one of these businesses. You could have a pool, a pool delegate that just like just goes out on Amazon or goes out on the city. So like, yeah, yeah, really yeah. I'm going to find ways to you know, lend to product categories that I think could expand because I think that they have a great product and I want to get behind them. And and so, yeah, there's so many ways that, that that can be brought together. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And we've also seen interest from the kind of the, the fintech lenders in other regions who have expertise. So they might, they might actually see us as a wholesale capital market where they could borrow, you know, like 50 or $100 million and then start parceling that out in smaller loans. And that would be akin to what I, I used to be doing in, in uh, institutional banking, totally. finding those players. Totally, yeah. So it works in that way as well. One of the things that we've been thinking a lot about is in DeFi, in basically, you know, in on-chain finance, let's just call it, whether it's a peer-to-peer -peer payment or participating in a, in a market 
or even just like showing up with my wallet to a game and wanting to get some virtual goods or whatever, like all these things on Web3, but very much when you get into capital markets, right? There's this huge issue of identity and how to create a way for entities, whether they're individuals, households, firms, whatever, for entities to kind of prove themselves and then have protocols be accepting of, of, of those kind of, kind of proofs. You know, how, how do you think about identity and kind of credentials tied to identities being critical to how a protocol and, and an infrastructure, even, even the DAO itself, uh, can scale? I think it would be a massive unblocker uh, to scaling. And there's a couple of reasons for that. So the largest institutions won't participate in DeFi uh, over, you know, concerns about compliance, AML, KYC, that kind of thing. So the ability for identity to be managed in, in a productized way, because currently it's done manually by almost every participant in the space. So the ability to productize that then means that it can be built into you know, built into user flows, like just like a, a login or authentication. And for DeFi to really grow its volume significantly, I think you need to see more institutional participation. And that will come as, uh, you know, if, if you can solve this idea of identity and KYC and, and compliant usage or participation in these protocols. We launched our two most recent pools were permissioned. And that was a very deliberate decision uh, so that we could access more participation from larger institutions, which we see as, as really core to, to driving growth on the platform. But we have to KYC all of them. If some wallet showed up and you're like, oh, okay, whatever, Circle or Coinbase or FTX or whoever has, has basically done the identity you know, checks on this and is a known institution or whatever it is, like your protocol could say, okay, I'm comfortable with you know, entities that have, have that. And, and maybe maybe there's a way, if, if there's a compliance reason to do a, a you know, information exchange or whatever or something. Yeah, 100%. And if you can, yeah, if, so like the idea of having, you know, like identity that sits at the wallet level and you know that it's been done by somebody, you know, done by a verified issuer. Yeah, it, it just significantly eases the friction of onboarding. And that's when, and that's when it starts to, be, DeFi starts to become just, like a much better user experience, absolutely. which is something that everybody always cites as like the reason that DeFi yeah, is not taking off. Yeah, and, and not only is it a better user experience, it still preserve it can still preserve security and privacy in ways that are even better than how the existing financial system works. But yeah, I mean, it it, it unlocks comfort at an institutional level, and and then ultimately down to the individual level, comfort to to use this infrastructure. And yeah, I think yeah. Stay, you know, we all will stay tuned for improvements that happen around that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. It's really exciting. I, I'd love to hear. You know, you just talk for a minute about, and obviously, you don't need to share anything uh, confidential or proprietary. But just you know, a little bit of you know, from where you started having conversations with different types of entities that might be using that to kind of where where you are today. In you know, just over uh, over eight months. You know, I'm sure you, you've seen the kind of conversations evolve, but like, wh what's the difference from then to, to now? And what does that tell you? Yeah. Uh, so I think we began, we launched uh, on Mainnet back in May of, uh, of 2021. And that was with a, a very first single pool of 17 million in loans. And then since then, we've now scaled that up to the point where we, we're currently sitting on about 505 million in TVL, so just over half a billion. 
And that was achieved in yeah about seven and a half months of growth. And we've now spread out to having four pools. But I would say the change that has occurred in the conversations is one, the Lindy effect. So seeing is believing. It was a lot harder to even get a foot in the door with these conversations before we were live. Then you go live and it's like, okay, this is just an experiment. Then you hit like a hundred million. It's like, okay, this is maybe a thing. And now we can sort of comfortably have a lot of conversations with uh, various TradFi institutions who are now actually looking across at this going, okay, like we're, we're actually quite serious about participating on this, whether as a lender or maybe spinning up a pool as a pool delegate. So I would say there's a number of CFI and TradFi players who've expressed interest in this, and they're actually looking at it with the lens that we, you know, that we try and push, which is its infrastructure. This is just a new platform and way of running the businesses that, you know, they've previously been familiar with, lending businesses. It's just when you're dealing with, you know, a B2B product like this, the sales cycle is a lot longer in terms of getting them comfortable. And so you've got to have multiple conversations with kind of compliance teams and, and, and risk and satisfy them on that. But the Overton window has shifted incredibly from, you know, early 2019, DeFi wasn't a thing. Then uh, early 2020, under collateralized lending wasn't a thing. And it's amazing to see, you know, the, I think in, in the under collateralized lending space has now been over a billion dollars of loans done. I think probably over this coming 12 months, I would expect that to at least 10x. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I often talk about the market opportunity for, for crypto finance. There, there are many market opportunities in crypto finance, but when I think about, you know, stable coins and lending and what, what that can look like, I mean, M2 is a big number and yeah. M2 is like $115 trillion. And if you break down M2 in terms of what that is and how much is uncollateralized and is, you know, credit expansion for people who are building businesses and, you know, so on, there's a, yeah. it's, it's staggering. It's staggering. Right. And we know how bad the existing, you know, system is in terms of, of efficiency and effectiveness. And so it's, it's cool. It's, um, it's going to be very, very exciting to see this evolve. I mean, on, on that note, like I think like with tools like USDC, right. And the ability to connect USDC with a capital market, you lower the barrier to entry to being a participant in capital markets and being a net saver or a net, net borrower. So you could be a net borrower if you want to expand your business. Maybe if you had a, uh, a bumper month or a bumper, uh, bumper year, you've got surplus capital, you want to invest it and deploy it in a capital market. Well, when you make it much, much easier to accept, access that and in smaller amounts, you dramatically expand the pie, right? It's like the idea of the Sony Walkman. It was like, as soon as it became it was like 10x the number of people who could listen to music and consume it, right? I talked to monetary theorists and central bankers and, and, and other folks from time to time. And you know, what, one of the things that I talk about is you know, the possibility that you could have a full reserve, you know, a full reserve digital currency, like a USC kind of, kind of thing, but still have money multiplication and money velocity that meet the, you know, credit expansion needs that are there. And one of the things that's really unique about stablecoins, blockchains is, you know, we're now seeing that, you know, from a capital efficiency perspective, you actually can store and transmit value basically to anywhere in the world at a fraction of a cent with finality and security. And, you know, fractional reserve banking in some ways reflects the 
capital inefficiency of the way money actually moves in the world. And if you collapse that, the physics of money change. And if you get, you have a full reserve instrument and yet, and the physics of money become, you know, you could theoretically to your point of net borrow versus uh, invest, right? You could have, you know, an individual or a household or a firm that's, you know, let's say it's, you know, I got 5,000 sitting there like a demand deposit account, or I've got, you know, a million sitting there like a corporate cash account. And it could be, you know, very, very efficiently on a programmatic basis being utilized as a facility on a, without having to create new money with a locking mechanism. So you actually theoretically can build, I think, me- mechanisms that provide the uh, superior capital availability to net you know, borrowers without introducing the fundamental risk of fractional reserve. And uh, so it's a, it's a, it's a, maybe a theoretical question right now, but I think the kinds of infrastructure that you're building and, you know, stuff that we're interested in paints a picture of, of maybe a slightly different model for how, you know, how, how this can work for, for society. Yeah, I think so. And I'm, I'm interested in like, you know, in terms of network science, like the emergent properties that will come out of an international financial system that's now more connected across the globe. Exactly. Where, like, I mean, the ability to transfer money in 15 seconds to the other side of the world versus T plus three days is like, yeah, what, yeah like what's going to come out of that? Like it's... Or on Solana, you've got 400 milliseconds and a fraction. Of yeah. 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 100%, which is something we're, we're, we're pretty excited about. So we're, we're going to start to build on Solana and, uh, and launch, you know, a, a V1 of our protocol there as well. But yeah, hugely, uh, hugely exciting. Yeah, absolutely. So this has been a really enjoyable conversation. Congrats on, on the momentum you guys have. And we're excited to be a partner and working with you and building with you. And yeah, really excited to see, uh, see what, see what happens over the next year. And, uh, I'm sure we'll have you back here on the, on the show as well. Yeah. Thanks for having me on Jeremy. I'd love to come back. Really enjoyed it. Cool. Thanks, dude.